Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX Worlds. I'm your host, Ken Sims, as always, and I need to tell you about the Chatbot Summit in Edinburgh. The European Chatbot Conference is going to be in March on the 15th and 16th, and VUX World are doing a day on the second day at the uh, Chatbot Summit in Edinburgh. We're going to have brands like uh, Vodafone, Love Holidays, Decathlon, a whole bunch of brands sharing their experiences of launching and developing uh, and improving conversational AI applications in the enterprise, lessons to be learned, uh, and best practice. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. The links to that will be in the show notes. You can save 30% if you use the promo code, which I'll put in the show notes and uh, in the podcast and on the website and all the places where you'll be listening to this podcast. Uh, Thank you for bearing with me there, uh, Paulina. Welcome to VUX World. Thank you for joining me. Hello, hello everyone. Good. How is it going? It's great. It's now New Year, start of the year, new resolutions. So yeah, only optimistic outlook. Monday was the first day that most people give up on their resolutions. Have you give up your resolutions yet, or are you still powering through? So uh, fortunately, uh, there is no much. <laughs> there is no much to to actually follow. Uh, but I think you know the one which I have, I, I I still continue for. So it's it's actually moving forward. Nice, that's good. My resolution this year for January was to quit sugar, and it has been absolutely rock hard. <laughs> I'm still going. I'm still maintaining, but it has been so hard. Um, didn't quite realize how addictive sugar was. I don't want to disappoint you, actually. Uh, if you realize that sugar is almost in everything we eat, yeah. so I'm sorry for. Yeah, it is fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I mean, I mean, sort of refined sugars and processed sugars. Then, so apples, I'm fine. I'll have an apple. You know, I'll have the natural sugar from the apple. I've been having blueberry smoothies, so I've been getting some natural sugar from blueberries. But uh, it's like refined sugars, like biscuits, cakes, pastries chocolate especially chocolate um things like that this is what i'm not having packaged food i'm trying not to have um natural sugars i'm fine with but processed and refined sugars i'm trying to stay away from um but yeah how what all that will happen and i can see this already is that at the end of january <laughs> defeating the object entirely the big reward will be like just smashing through a bunch of chocolate and cakes or something <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. So it's only for January, right? Or just for January, year? yeah. Oh, okay. Just for January, yeah. I just wanted to see if I can just get you know get through a month and uh, see if I can at least break that sort of dopamine uh, addiction to sugar. Whether it works, who knows? I'll return to sugar with a slightly less overzealous mindset, perhaps. But we'll see. <laughs> But anyway, crossed. yeah, keep your fingers crossed. Keep your fingers crossed, toes crossed, legs crossed. Everything is going to be very hard. It's been so hard so far. But anyway, uh, enough about my uh, my sugar habits. Tell me about your habits as a, as a conversation designer at. Uh, did you pronounce it Rosh or Roche? Rosh. So Rush. Uh, uh, it's actually interesting because uh, I still consider myself as a newbie. As with when we met last time, I, I explained you that we mainly focus on our experiments. You know, so if you have experiments, it's not like like fully productive. You have lots of shortcuts, so you learn a lot. You can really uh, nicely experiment, but it's not kind of like full life cycle and everything. So I, I'm still learning, but and we are building also. Uh, a team around uh, the conversation design capabilities. 
but it's kind of a new for us. Uh, and of course, uh, there are some internal processes which, uh, which we automated and we have a team uh, responsible for that. But what I am particularly talking about is actually the, the conversational interfaces and the conversational um, design for more external looking, as we call it, uh, particularly patient facing uh, assistants, I would say. So it's a kind of a new um, journey to me. I started two years ago with a bunch of experiments we had, and I will bring some to you today during this nice. uh, conversation. Um, and only continuing. So actually starting last October, uh, I really moved to the conversational design role, like a full time. And uh, now uh, on my plate, I'm having the multimodal uh, virtual assistant for MS patient to, to really learn more and understand more what is the space for that technology. Nice. Sounds good. So um, could you give us a bit of kind of the context of, of Roche in terms of for those that may not be aware, like what Roche does and how your sort of role within it and, and the scope of, because you said you're doing a lot of experiments, presumably in like the, the innovation or research kind of uh, division, is it? Or something? Could you give us a bit yeah, of context so Roche, on the company and your, your division? Roche is a pharmaceutical company, big worldwide. We are bringing really lots of advancement around the science for the diagnostics and for the medicines for patients. Uh, we are really investing a lot in uh, research and development. And of course, with that, uh, it came to us that we really also invest more from the technology perspective and what the technology can bring to patients. Uh, myself uh, and uh, what I am doing, uh, it's a part of the uh, global Roche Informatics. So it's also a worldwide organization. So we are supporting whole organization from the informatics perspective and really bringing new technologies uh, on board as well. And as a part of this big organization, uh, we had also a smaller so-called tech experimentation team when we really wanted to experiment with the new technologies, uh, with this really fast and quick uh, uh, idea how you can do this. Uh, and it really allows us to bring lots of innovative ideas and really see how we can actually continue on them. Mm, nice. So where did, where did the journey start then with Roche? Where did this kind of idea for maybe a conversational interface could be a good idea here? Where, where did that begin? It's difficult to say actually where if you think about a big organization, but actually in one of our discussion, it appears okay. Um, actually, it started with Digital Human. So uh, we saw some interesting presentation thinking, okay, what could be the applicability for, for that? And, you know, maybe also setting a bit of the context around the healthcare. So uh, there are lots of uh, information available, but like simplifying and bringing them, we are really aging as a population, right? So it means that more people will need help from the healthcare professional worldwide. Um, additionally, uh, we know, and actually COVID pandemic revealed it so much, that there are really shortfalls uh, for healthcare workers. And uh, the WHO, so World Health, uh, Health Organization, also predicts that it will be even more. So if you think like from only that perspective, uh, 
then you see that actually conversational interfaces are a good place for automations, right? So you can really put some interfaces which can really help and can really facilitate somehow the interaction between the doctor, the nurse, uh, and patients, actually. And actually, it has happened during COVID. So COVID is like the uh, digital ally uh, uh, for, for the uh, digital transformation, also in the healthcare. In lots of area, actually, chatbots start, the transactional chatbots started to somehow help uh, doing this connection and facilitate some some stuff. So this is like from the from the helicopter view, I would say, perspective. So the needs, but also what we know because we, of course, we have lots of projects, lots of interactions with patients. Uh, we know that there is also a need to to have reliable and uh, relevant information available for patient 24 uh, 24 per seven, meaning that. You know, with this workload, workload which, which is already in a healthcare, the patients are not having sometimes a relevant support because the doctors are really busy and uh, and it's really difficult. And also the visits are very, very short one. So if you think about it, uh, and we actually, if we were thinking about it, it was immediately for us, okay, how, how to support it, how to create um, a digital humor or, or kind of a gateway between the doctor and the patient who can really help with, with this interaction, who, which can be really available when it's needed, actually. So this is, you know, this is, you know, how, how it started. And the more we dig, we also learn that as humans, actually, uh, we, uh, we sometimes really struggle sharing some specific information, even with our doctors, even with our healthcare professionals. So it appears that um, the conversational interface might be also interesting one to really help patients, help people to, to disclose more and to then with this disclosure also learn more about their, their disease. Mm, yeah, there's been some, there has been some studies done, hasn't there, in the past, which has found that people, in some cases, prefer to speak to a sort of digital assistant for certain things. Like there was a really good one uh, about the. Did you ever did you ever hear about Sergeant Star? No. The U.S. So the U.S. military introduced a, a bot called Sergeant Star. And it was there to try and encourage people to to basically enroll to be in the army, the U.S. Army. And most of the time, what they do is they have offices in towns and you've got big sort of like strapping soldiers, really intimidated, sort of like war-torn guys and girls who've kind of been through it all. And they're there and they're really intimidating, trying to get people to sign up. They're not purposefully being intimidating, but, you know, like they can be quite intimidating. And what happened, what they found is that when they launched this, this chatbot, people were asking the chatbot things that they wouldn't dream of asking the recruitment officers. They were asking things like, you know, if I get put in the army, am I going to be given a gun? Like, will I need to kill people? Like, will I have to shower with other dudes and stuff like that? And they were ask, asking questions that were just, they didn't realize that those were the needs of the people that they were speaking to because it was intimidating to speak to, you know, a super fit, ultra experienced soldier. And it's a lot easier to speak to basically a, a robot by China. Did you learn similar things in, in this digital human project, like in terms of people's comfort levels? 
We did actually not from the digital human, but maybe on the note, uh, I can tell you about Ellie. If you know Ellie, it, it's actually very similar uh, because it was for the veterans uh, uh, from the, I think, Vietnam War, I believe. So, so um, and not only actually uh, Afghanistan as well. So um, uh, I think it, it was created for the PTSD, so post-traumatic symptom disorder for the, uh, for the veterans. And there was a study uh, where really it's shown that actually when interacting with Ellie, which was just kind of an avatar uh, uh, of a person, they were more keen of disclose more symptoms they having. And there were two parts of this research. The one was with the face-to-face -face therapist, normal person and with the faceless chatbot and then it appears the disclosure to the chatbot really had twice more uh, information because the faceless chatbot was more like the privacy safety yeah. yeah but then they do also another part with the faceless chatbot and more like this avatar Thing, so uh, Ellie therapist and then it appears that with Ellie they disclose twice more than to the faceless chatbot because it was kind of creating some rapport and connection between between them so it's already showing that this embodiment although it's still virtual and it was not like this digital human we are now seeing in this particular uh, vendors providing them but like simple um, simple embodiment actually it already somehow encouraged and built this type of um, connection that people were really able to disclose more um, on that note, I think it was Boston Medical Center also. So they introduced chatbot to patients which have been discharged from the hospital. And they actually have been using chatbot for a uh, final interview. And what they actually uh, notice is that people actually share more information with chatbot. But with the final survey, they learned that actually it's because uh, people were mindful about the time of the administrative work of the healthcare mm. professionals. So they didn't want to take too much time, actually. So there are different motivation, but you can already see how does it work. From our experience, actually from one of experiment around the multimodal assistant, uh, uh, around some silent symptoms uh, people may, uh, may uh, experience during the chronic disease. Actually, it appears that they were more keen to ask some questions about topics which were not super uh, easy to them to speak with the healthcare professional, like some sexual problems, urinary disorders, and all this stuff. So it appears it was easier to ask these questions to the to the machine, actually, not feeling being judgmental around it and not have this barrier, actually. Interesting. Do you think that's what it is predominantly, as people don't feel judged? Do you think that's what it is, or do you think there's other things going on? I am not a professional in that area. <laughs> I, I, I think I need to kind of deepen my knowledge, but I think this is this is exactly how, how it is. So that, um, and I think it's you know it's also what we will learn in upcoming years. I believe, right? Because what we think about digital humans, if we can think about you know what is a digital human? A digital human is an embodiment. 
and also we speak human because we are expecting some human threats, right? So because it looks like human, it might have voice, actually, it talked to us. So we perceive it, okay, it might be like a human-like conversation. And then we think if we create similar emotions, which humans have discussing and talking each other, uh, we believe that people will also behave the same with the machines. But this is only the belief we have, because mm. we don't have enough data to actually understand if it's actually the same as people behave between the, if there's the same behavior between the machine and the person as between two people, actually. Mm. So I Is think we need to learn wait more and really look for more data and see how does it actually feel. Yeah. And is that something that you're looking at then? Is that part of this experiments with a digital human? Or well, that, not yet, no. <laughs> I would say. I think uh, I, uh, I, I would personally be, be, uh, be more involved. We really now more look actually more look like, uh, is it possible uh, trying to look as a desk research? So really uh, see for some researchers which has been done already. And just to be fair, there is not much. Of course, there are more and more are coming in terms of some interaction between human and machines, but not definitely between more embodied machines or embodiment uh, like digital human. But what mm. we are trying to, what we tried to understand with a few experiments we did last year around digital humans, actually, if this emotional connection can be built on one hand, and if the technology is ready, and what does it mean that the emotional connection can be built? Mm. And what did you find then? Can an emotional connection be established and is the technology ready? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I will take it more from the technology perspective. So if we, as I started already, if we think about digital human, again, it's some virtual embodiment um, on top of it and uh, on background. So behind, we have some conversational platform because this is how it works. So mm. this is the one thing. So the, the assistant uh, or the digital human will answer some question to the extent which they were somehow uh, properly designed on one hand. And additionally, what we could expect as majority of people, we have some voice that also the digital human will also speak some voice. And if we think about uh, how the conversation between people works and how we build some kind of the connection, it's really how we respond to behavior the other person is having. So if you would search for empathy, if something is wrong, you would like me to most probably listening carefully, empathize, most probably not cry with you if you start to cry, but rather to provide you some support. And um, we really wanted to think if the technology is ready about it. So from the technology perspective, if you think what is behind. So there's lots of prominent uh, uh, areas from the AI space, actually. So this is like sound and video processing, uh, CGI, uh, text processing, sentiment analysis, natural language processing, natural language understanding. So really a lot about it. And 
even if I am saying this, it means that all these components needs to be somehow connected. Because now, currently on the market, there is no one single provider which is good in all these technologies together. So you really need to put together various components to really make it work. And if we think about building this um, emotional connection, it can go from what you say, so, so the text, uh, it can go from the tone of your voice, so how you are saying things, and also from how your face looks like, right? So from sort so of facial recognition. So that was our area of focus. So uh, how we can analyze the text and how actually we can speak it back or type it back, depends on the situation. Um, how we can analyze the video, so how we can process video. Uh, during the streaming time, actually, not asynchronously, but in the moment mm -hmm. when, when it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, uh, how we can really combine all of this together and how we can also grasp emotions from the voice. So we test few top platforms, cloud platforms available on the market with some additional models around of uh, video streaming because for the video streaming, there are mainly some custom models around. Uh, and the technology somehow support, is, support all of this component, but if you want to combine it together, this is not super easy case. Mm. And we are still really in the beginning of our journey. And even now, I'm not sure if you spot it, but for me, I can see your face sometimes be blurry. I don't know if it's my network connection or it's yours, but you can also feel how much it can be influenced also by other factors like internet connection, like do you have your mobile phone or, or, or other means. So in theory and a little bit in practice, uh, it's ready, but it requires lots of effort. So the text analysis uh, now, it's it's relatively easy to be done, but we can also fake the text very much because we can always rethink what we want to write. We can be more polite. And if we, if we type the text to the machine, uh, machine will somehow do the sentiment analysis based on it. And then if we speak, the voice can be to some extent fake, but it's not easy to fake. So if we are emotional, the voice is really emotional. Sometimes you can have a poker face. So if you combine all these engines together, it might even happen, happen that depends on the analysis based on all those three channels. You have like the contradictory idea about the emotion of someone speaking to you. And then mm. how, the, how the response should be built. So I think it's a still future, but we really need to carefully, carefully observe how it is developing. And again, I am more generalist in this area, so I can imagine there are more people who can really elaborate on this specific areas. But at least uh, mm. we think this is, this is something uh, which, uh, which definitely will develop further. But for now, it's really up to what is needed and what we should focus on. Mm. So um, I understand this correctly then, which is that the digital human that you that you created 
was doing a number of things. So one, it was recognizing the user's face, for want of a better phrase, the video, so that it could mm-hmm. mimic streaming the video in, so it could mimic or understand the emotional the emotional state of the user based on facial expressions and things like that, combined with speech recognition that is aiming to... Were you doing any analysis on the speech recognition or were you just converting that to text and doing sentiment analysis on that? Rather sentiment analysis. So we tried to use uh, what these platforms are giving to us and certain mm. platforms gives you the some uh, sentiment analysis with some scores, right? And based on the scores, you could actually... Uh, we try to even program program. So, so somehow uh, allow different intents to be you know, provided depends on, on that. Um, from the uh, um, facial recognition, uh, we use also vendors who, who have some algorithms behind their, uh, their, their own uh, platform. So we actually rather try to combine those given from the platform yeah. that create something like that but yeah. particularly something like this but again i would call it more like the lego lego <laughs> idea than like you yeah, know yeah, yeah. fully fledged fully fledged solutions rather really check what we can do is it possible to do some platforms actually didn't allow to to specific um act on so to from from the digital human didn't allow for specific act for for uh, for emotions from themselves you need to program in a specific moment on the conversation how actually the avatar will behave so it was mm-hmm. difficult especially that we would love to have kind of response very natural in the moment you know when when it comes okay if you actually plan for the intents and you still, okay, this intent will be triggered in the certain emotion state based on text analysis, for example, we can still program it. Uh, but this is not like as natural as possible. Mm-hmm. So it, there is still a place for improvement. So could you walk us through the the how, how you sort of, once you go through this process and you're kind of assembling these pieces of technology because you're trying to create a digital human that is trying to improve the relationship between the doctor and the patient and you want to make it so that it can recognize things like emotion, respond accordingly based on the, the user's emotion and stuff like that. What was the actual context of the use case? Like, How would this, if all of these experiments went really well or even when you were testing it, what is the sort of context in how this thing does and works like is it, is it a doctor sitting on sitting there with a patient and there's digital humans listening and giving feedback like how, how does it actually work if i was a patient and i kind of came in to to use this thing okay i would say it's very futuristic as i said but you know there are of, of course the use cases we we could think of um i think the most important one uh, is actually uh, the area of uh, some uh, mental support so if uh, if uh, and this is not it this was not actually our use case but this is something which i can actually came up with uh, currently so uh, 
if you have a virtual therapist who can really help you with some support, you actually would like to have this type of uh, um, emotional recognition. But again, uh, this is to me something really, really sounds like a future. What we think is rather really a gateway between the uh, HCP, so the uh, healthcare professional as a patient. Mm -hmm. So with this emotional recognition, it's rather something which really allowed build patient um, uh, connection actually and being more willing to use the technology here uh, on one hand mm, and actually this this was the most important use case from our side uh, I want to make also clear that if we think about uh, um, recognition as emotion recognition this is really very tricky area <laughs> and you know we really want to make sure that this is transparent and that everyone understands what does it mean. So to me, uh, if I were, you know, somehow uh, using a digital human or whichever other technology which somehow recognize my emotion and trying to sell something to me, I wouldn't consider this as an ethical. But if we really think about why it could be helpful in a, in a healthcare. So I don't know, in a future, for example, if we can properly um, somehow recognize emotions with patients who are using digital humans or other conversational AI technologies or AI technologies, being able to actually recognize those emotions and somehow doctors could benefit really on early stage, recognize some uh, deviation during the treatment, especially chronic uh, during the chronic diseases. I could imagine that would be really of help. Super, mm. but it's a really tiny eyes, I would say, uh, if we if we uh, going through emotional recognition, and even I think last week. Um, I've read in this uh, so European Union work on this AI Act, and I think. Germany actually now is really trying to ban the emotional recognition in terms mm -hmm. of the uh, the usage because of course it can be misused and the idea is you know how we can use this technology advancement to really support it but i could give you another example more from how it can help doctors to be trained <laughs> to actually mm -hmm. speak with patients better because yeah, yeah. we are very often complaining that we don't have enough empathy from doctors when they have some information for us, which might not be good always. So actually I could imagine uh, the doctors could speak to digital humans and see their reactions and see the reaction back and actually be trained in a way how to communicate properly uh, and mm -hmm. how to see wh how in which impact they can they can do and they could do for people actually. This is another interesting yeah. use case. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's there's agent assist technologies out there at the moment which do something similar in terms of helping call centre agents with training and stuff like that. And it'll do things like, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know, 
cross-sell someone on something. It will sort of be able to rank your emotion and then effectiveness of the cross-sell and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's all it all starts to get a bit real. I've just pulled up this uh, this thing here. I didn't see this uh, from last week, but yeah, Germany positioned to dig heels in over EU's AI Act and biometric use. Uh, put in a potential block on AI tools such as emotion recognition from being used, uh, polygraphs and emotion recognition, and lobby to prohibit AI systems from monitoring employee performance. So that's basically what I was kind of getting at, is that these these agent assist tools, if you can hear Winston downstairs, Gemma's just on her way in, so Winston's going crazy. Uh, the, these agent assist tools, although they can be really helpful, and they can help agents with training, for example. So if you you can just get on a phone and it will it will prompt you in terms of what to say, and it'll auto, it'll even automate certain sort of use cases for you. And so it's kind of it can help you, but at the same time, it's monitoring your performance, it's monitoring the way you're talking potentially in future, it's monitoring like how effective you are at cross selling versus your peers and stuff like that. And so it's it's all it's I mean contact centers try and do this anyway, but a lot of it's manual right now. So this technology basically just kind of aggregates all of this data from all of these employees um, and kind of it means that there's no stone left unturned basically and then if you think about in a healthcare setting you've got someone who is probably sometimes maybe vulnerable maybe they're not very confident don't really want to talk to a doctor or nurse about something in particular um, and then all of a sudden there's a camera pointing at them which is not just recognizing what they're saying and logging that and sending that for analysis. It's also looking at the way that they're looking. There's a camera, there's there's audio, there's quite a lot of data that can be gleaned from that interaction. And there's more that can be gleaned from speech as well, you know, like canary speech and others who can, you know, recognize COVID from a cough and Parkinson's with three minutes worth of audio. So there's there's a whole load of opportunity and potential is one area of looking one way of looking at it with this technology because it is super impressive when it works but the other area is that it can be quite dicey dangerous territory because how do you be transparent about this stuff without sitting there and explaining to someone for 15 minutes these are all of the technologies at play here when you talk to this thing it's a quite a tricky situation isn't it it is tricky, but I think if we really want to use it, we need to make sure that this is really as transparent as possible and really as ethical as possible. And to me, this is actually a key point, which I have, you know, in my mind, whatever we want to do, there is really a need to educate, evangelize and think, you know, where it can be used, how it can be used and what's the impact, because eventually it can really help a lot, but it requires lots of data. And even if we try to be really, really transparent, it doesn't mean that uh, everyone is understanding this. So that's 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 really important. And to me, it's a, it's it's a really very hard and difficult point now. But I'm also very much motivated to see, you know, how we can overcome this. But and I and I can imagine, you know, all this uh, these acts around it are very important, and we really need to avoid as much as possible misusing it, just to not create also uh, not the right picture uh, around what can be done. So I think also last week it came. It was Coco. I'm not sure if you heard about it. So that was a tweet from the Coco owner. Um, Coco is a company who is supporting a mental health from teens and adults um, via chats like Discords or Telegram. And what they did, they actually train a GPT-3 model behind 
but they mm-hmm. didn't actually make transparent that the people are talking to machine. People were really sure that they they have a discussion around their mental health uh, with a person. And I think it was like 4,000 people. And I am totally against it because to me, it really ruins all the effort which we might have around, you know, the transparency and the ethical use of it. Although they learn interesting things, but again, this is this is really this is really not the case, and we should not actually uh, actually yeah, act like this. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that here. Four thousand people got responses, partly written by AI. Um, it's interesting. the The transparency question and ethics question is a very good one. Um, we we met at the conference, didn't we, last year? The was it the rework conference? Were you at the rework conference? Yeah. In London, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah. And there was a really good discussion on ethics there. And and my kind of takeaway from that is that we're miles away from solving it because there was lots of good questions, but there was no sort of concrete answers. And although that there is a lot of and quite rightly, um, kind of talk and awareness in in the AI community about ethics, it's almost like the practicalities of of taking those values and being transparent and putting that into an actual solution there there is conflict there between doing that and which is the right thing to do and also the usability and usefulness of the tool like for example i won't mention which platform it was but there's there is a voice assistant platform uh one of the ones and uh, i know a company who was working on a healthcare based application and in order for it to be published, the feedback was that you have to absolutely have a statement before anybody interacts with this thing that says these things, which is it needs to tell you what data it's collecting, where the data is stored, how it's being used, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it turns out that that statement was so long that no one was actually going to use the app because it was going to take you a minute and a half just to listen to all of the T's and C's. And so it's kind of like, for me, there needs to be sort of, I don't, I don't know what the solution is, and this is probably symptomatic of the stage of maturity that I think we're at from an ethics and transparency point of view with, with AI. But it seems to me as though there needs to be something that educates the user about those kind of things. This is what it's doing. This is how it works. This is where the data is going. This is how we use it. But this is the benefit that it'll bring. But how do you do that from a practical standpoint without diluting or, or kind of, in effect, making the application unusable? So uh, I wish I could answer this question later. <laughs> what, because you actually, <laughs> we, well, surprisingly, <laughs> but actually uh, yeah, we, we end up with the same situation, also trying to not really to be transparent uh, uh, with one of our exper- experiments around the voice, so multimodal assistant. So we even created a video before, so people need to actually see those video. Um, we are still kind of experimenting. So it's like a pool of, of uh, some limited number of person included. And they did that. But, you know, when we ask questions about, you know, about the data, about the transparency, it seems that somehow either it was ignored or they didn't they didn't understand it. But this is really super important thing. So, I mean, to me, uh, you know, now we have chat GPT, right? <laughs> so the more we can... Uh, make transparency in you know mainstreams wherever it's happening even today i was listening to the uh, radio and they were speaking about it like i was like wow surprised right (laughs) so 
the more we can actually make it like more a public discussion from this good and bad points of view. Because what my feeling is we rather speak about this, you know, misused of it than like really what it brings from the positive angle. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about all this advancement in um in medical field, like from the diagnosis part and, and recognition from your MRI and others. So it's really about this as well, right? So if we can bring more positive, actually, examples, how it impacts our life, it could bring some good work as well for that, because I think we, we are much more vocal on this negative yeah. one than the positive one. And this 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 is a huge stuff and i think now with chat gpt everyone speak about it right so it it does somehow the work but again we need to we need to bring more positive examples and try to think about value how which it can brings to our life and to some advancements we are using on daily basis Mm. People, people will kind of. I don't want to. Use, <laughs> I was going to say sacrifice privacy in exchange for value, which I suppose is a is a is a bit of a brutal way of saying it. But that's kind of what it is. Which is, people, you know, your mobile phone knows more about you than any one of your family members. You know, it knows where you are, what you're doing, what you're searching for, what you listen to, who you call, who you message. There's so much data that that you give up in exchange for that. But it's worth it because of the value that it provides you. Same thing with kind of like, you know, you could use the example of a voice assistant. You're happy to give it the data in terms of your speech and stuff like that because of the value that it can, can that it can provide you. Um, this, I suppose the question is when it's the, or the, the consideration is when it starts doing things like turning on a camera, you know, and some people even today. You know, I was on a call today and 50 percent of the people on the call didn't have the cameras turned on. And it's like, you know. There's people who, for whatever reason, whether it's cultural, whether it's kind of apprehension or self-consciousness or whatever it might be, don't like cameras, don't like cameras turned on. Where's the footage going to go? You know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's it's definitely a real kind of um, a real thing that needs to be sort of overcome. There's ways of doing it, I think. You know, even web browsers actually do a half decent job of trans of being transparent. Maybe they could do a better job. But like if 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 before we join this call, if you open up the web browser, it'll say this program wants to access your mic. Are you happy with that? You could build in a staged kind of onboarding process that's not like a 35 minute <laughs> pre-read, but more of a, a staggered, staged interactive onboarding process potentially. But I think there's some things that you know some people i don't know may not always be happy with in this area but then again are these solutions for everybody or are they for the people who are kind of willing and able at this point well again your your questions are really really difficult but actually i i had uh, before our our meeting today i actually had um this thought about you know enabling camera and I don't have numbers there, but I can imagine like having actually a digital human. So kind of the conversational interface with a face and the body embodiment. It could actually more encourage people to actually open the camera because it's kind of the interaction. Go on, go yeah. on, go on. Go on. Uh, no, because um, I'm not sure if you interact with some of those um, uh, digital human, but they some actually can uh, recognize um, your uh, kind of how you how you behave slightly. So um, have you talked to Florence 2.0, WHO, no. digital human? So 
please go to the WHO webpage or find the Florence 2.0. She can advise you how to quit tobacco. I don't think there is a sugar thing there, but (laughs) maybe you can relate somehow. Uh, uh, She also provides information about the mental health and, of course, COVID-19 vaccination. So when you talk to Florence, she will slightly somehow response for your behavior. So if you would show your thieves, for example, one smiling, she will also slightly smile. Uh, She will add some gestures from her hands as well. So then, you know, asking also who can interact, people who are more techy or interested in those type of technology, they will enable camera. So she also asked about mm-hmm. doing that because only then this interaction is kind of more responding again. So responding for some behaviors behind. Interesting. So to yeah, me, that be, uh, actually could be encouraging. You know, you have uh, yeah. someone on in front of you who does not judge how you look, rather yeah. how you behave actually yeah. and somehow respond for that. Interesting. Yeah. No, I was being flippant there with that, but I, I think yeah, I can see that now. Yeah. Who partners and like, it looks like a soul machines. Um, I think yes, very much like yes, a soul machine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I definitely, th- yeah, there's something, there's definitely something to that. Um, there's definitely something to that. What was going back to the sort of project you were working on then? Um, what was some of the, the sort of key learnings do you think that you took from that from a, you know, human to digital human interaction point of view, do you think, what were what some of the sort of key learnings you got from it? Maybe it will surprise you, maybe not. But the, our key learning is that now we should focus maybe not on the virtual embodiment, but if we think about really bringing the conversational interface, because again, this is our area of, of, of research around it, uh, we really focus on uh, on the properly crafted content and conversation around this content and actually uh, focus on voice um, because voice it's kind of perceived as as easier uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, connection Um, so this is our our focus of course we are experimenting and we are doing some additional uh, project around digital humans but not in the area of emotional recognition, so really like the conversational interface with with the with the with the face, so with the yeah. with the with the face. Nice. So uh, now we rather not uh, continue. Of course, the this is interesting topic. We 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 learn a lot uh, in terms of the technology, but this is still emerging thing from from the technology once. And if you ask legal compliance and ethical point we as a world we are not there to be used Mm. like this it's very interesting that because i've spoke to a number of companies who've either experimented with or deployed digital humans and i think probably all of them don't have them anymore so we had we had rob cunningham who's innovation manager for lner on um on the podcast last year, talking about the experiment that, that they did at um, Newcastle Rail Station. And again, it was an experiment. It was part of the innovation department's initiative to figure out whether there's value here. But it didn't make it forward because of those reasons, partly the, those reasons you outlined. And not just the digital human itself, but in order to get a screen 
in all of the places that it needs to be with a stable internet connection and all of that kind of stuff. It's it's very expensive to do that. Um, and then you've also got the issue of, you know, if you look at Serence or Soundhound and those companies that specialize in voice recognition in noisy environments, you'll know that in, in vehicles, for example, they have very specific microphones. They've got beamforming microphones and you've got companies like Yobi who could do a lot of pre-processing on the audio so that when you hand it to the speech recognition system, you're getting clean signals. So, But when you go to deploy something in a physical environment, most of the time people are just using laptops or they're using tablets rather. And it's like the mics are absolutely terrible. There's no beam forming. There's no pre-processing. There's just, it's just this, the equipment is, is terrible. So it's not even just the software that may not be quite sort of ready. The hardware is a kind of big inhibitor. But it's interesting how you say that because it's just, it's, I've just realized that there's a lot of companies I've spoke to recently who've experimented with digital humans and haven't kind of pushed it on for, for some reason. So it, might, it must not be quite ready for prime time. And if you speak about hardware, it's not only about digital human. As you mentioned, it's voice, right? So uh, if you design it, uh, I mean, you know, I am super much interested in the voice itself. I feel you know, it's really enabler from the accessibility perspective as well. But on the other hand, it really has accessibility problems itself now, right? Because uh, now uh, being a, a global company, we don't want to exclude we want to include, which means if we want to um, onboard more people, we need to speak more languages and not only from text perspective. And if we want to really advance voice technologies, which might be in some actually supporting some uh, diseases, actually, it should be a case because there is no other way uh, for patients to, to communicate with the conversational assistant, actually then uh, voice is a barrier in terms of, you know, is it is the language somehow supported? Is the specific area of this language, so specific accents, actually? Um, is it supported by other um, devices, right? So how you bring it to people, right? Um, what type of apps you should build? And if you build it for voice, actually, this is also very much hardware specific, uh, I must admit. So, you know, even it's, you know, nice to have this experiment because we really learn lots of things which we can actually apply um, with bots, just at, with bots. Um, still digital humans, you know, and especially thinking about this recognition, this, this, this is really uh, a future if, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, the core sort of, brain of it all without which the digital human would be useless is the conversational component you know a digital human without the well, the conversational ai without the digital human is still able to have the conversation but the digital human without the conversational ai is just a picture <laughs> and so Hello. You know, and I would argue that the conversational AI technology is definitely ready for prime time. It's been deployed in loads of different environments, both voice and chat, you know, and particularly voice. You know, if you look at in car, out of the home, on mobile, in headphones, you know, it's it's getting to the point where it's pretty much able, able to be deployed anywhere technically, obviously cost costs aside. But um, so I think it's probably a good shout to be focusing on the conversational aspect, focusing on the voice aspect. And although it's not, it's not accessible to everyone it's it's accessible to a lot you know um 
yeah, working within the constraints of things like accents and languages and stuff. But you still think about multimodality, trying to get the best from what we can and also build further. So um, if I think about enabling the uh, uh, voice or text assistant uh, to patients, we can still learn, you know, we meaning the healthcare uh, area. Well, actually, people ask ask for for what they ask for because this is not like you know uh, known knowledge. If you think you know even about the conversational AI, uh, the uh, current applicability in healthcare area, not in this I don't know transactional uh, area, building the um, uh, uh, booking the visitor and so on, or some. Q&A, simple Q&A on maybe interviews, as I mentioned, this discharge patient. This is also an area which is not super covered by conversational interfaces, actually. And this is what we learn and this is what we want to more explore from that perspective. So not to even go that far, but really to understand how, how this, this can really, our, our idea is kind of support the discussion between doctor and the patient. It's not to exclude doctor, just to be really fair about it and just to say it's not about making a diagnosis. No, it's about non-diagnostic stuff. It's really about facilitate this discussion and really help each other. And it seems this is really the area when it can be applicable. So, you know, not even go so far, but really stay in that area. I, I see a lot of challenges already, which needs to be overcome. But there, it seems the technology, software, hardware can be somehow already implemented in the specific areas. Mm, definitely, definitely. And the, the good point is a good point about the data uh, stuff as well and learning things that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Like that Sergeant Star example, you know, m- most enterprises that have conversational AI, some of them actually, some of the main benefits is the analytics. You know, Comwave uh, Telco in Canada was able to reduce the reasons that people have for calling its contact center by 30% simply just by seeing what it is that people are actually calling about and then going and doing something about it, preventing the call in the first place. And as we've mentioned already, there's certain things that people will talk to an assistant about that they won't talk to a person about. So there's a lot left on the table, basically. And if you're able to, you know, this is a bit more of a futuristic kind of thing, but if a if a healthcare practice has a, a digital assistant alongside all of the doctors or even like a pre-conversation with the patient before they arrive, all of that data aggregated and rolled up at a kind of, you know, a, a kind of company level would give you insights into actually lots and lots of people have this issue in the last three weeks or actually there's a cold or there's a flu breakout or there's something here. You're able to do a lot more analysis around the general health of the population, which then can help you inform things like policy, medication, supplies and all this kind of stuff. Um, So the data stuff, this data could be one of the most valuable parts of it all. All is about data. Actually, so yeah. couldn't agree more. Yeah, but it's really also bringing uh, uh, more to the patients. I, I saw already some reactions, and and I am super encouraged by this. You know, so uh, even the information which supposed to be available in Doctor Google, you know, usually you know if you have diagnosis. Very often of the first visit, you are really overwhelmed, especially, you know, if we talk about chronic or very, very or fatal diseases, actually. So, you know, if you only 
have a possibility to have really reliable information and somehow structure in a way that it does not overwhelm you. So you don't go to a one, you know, web page when you have like all information available at first sight. So if you can somehow be provided with the information which is relevant to the specific moment you are actually in, to me, that would be really the game changer in support of the patient journey during during the during the mm, from beginning from diagnosis to the to the to the treatment and maintenance of the disease and mm. really help healthcare professionals because if they have a reliable source to somehow um, share with patients right this will be really something which which really will will help the society so much but of course, I would be very much vocal with all the transparency and ethic behind. So why the data is used, uh, how they are stored, uh, anonymous as, as much as possible, because only then we can do really the good job for a whole, like the society around it. Nice. Well, that was that was a good way to end, I think. <laughs> Definitely. Paulina Lewandowska, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been amazing. Likewise. Thank you so much for the invitation and see you in Edinburgh. I'll be there also yes. speaking about this conversational AI supporting patient journey. Perfect. I look forward to seeing you there. And I look forward to seeing you there if you're tuning in to this uh, live or on the replay. Edinburgh Chatbot and Conversational AI Summit in Edinburgh on the 15th and 16th of March. Join me and Paulina there. Uh, VUX World is going to be running a track on the second day all about enterprise transformation using conversational AI. It's going to be absolutely amazing. I'll put the promo codes in the show notes uh, and on the website. And I'll also be sending a bunch of emails out. So if you haven't subscribed at VUX.world forward slash subscribe, do so if you're not following me on LinkedIn, also do so and subscribe to the newsletter there if you uh, if you can't be bothered having emails firing up your inbox. Uh, thank you again so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and we'll see you, see you very soon. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.